Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where working remotely around here means doing Zoom meetings from a hot air balloon. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you profitably scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is amazingly great. We use a proven process to create premium valuation, capital efficient growth, and freedom so you build a business you're proud of and create a life of impact that you absolutely love. Now, I had a conversation with a SaaS founder earlier this week, and uh, just kind of unloading, you know, these this year feels like I'm playing a game of whack-a-mole with my profit margins. Things are going well, and something pops up. And then I deal with that, and something else happens. And he's like, you know, buyers can be fickle, vendors unreliable, and interest rates are going up again. And, you know, I'm telling you, they're definitely doing that. So, you know, we'll see what happens this uh, this next week, but I think that's pretty much a given, and we'll continue that way. Um, but, you know, it's you know, he's like, it's three steps forward and two steps back. And that's good. At least we're making some progress. But I know it, it's, it feels hard in the moment, three steps forward, two steps back. And we probably felt that, uh, all of us, to one degree or another, uh, either now or, you know, at some point on our journey. And as we left, I noticed a familiar sight up at the front of the restaurant. It's a little toothpick dispenser at the hostess stand. And it sparked a memory of a book I read a few years ago about toothpicks. And you're probably thinking, you know, what kind of nerd reads a book about toothpicks, right? Uh, But toothpicks we use today are actually a really incredible blend of marketing and technology. It was a result of an idea, vision, and small innovations that sparked an entire industry. And it may seem trivial, but they symbolize resourcefulness and finding new ways to solve problems and looking beyond the obvious solutions. There's a deeper origin story behind toothpicks, which uh, I'll just share it in a future episode. But for now, here's the lesson that I, I really gleaned out of this experience. One is that leading a SaaS company through turbulent markets requires being resourceful, innovative, and seeing opportunities that others don't see. You know, toothpicks used to be square and made out of wood. There are lots of ways to get stuff out of your teeth, right? But, uh, you know, they've become much more. Like I carry around floss picks now and I uh, have them, you know, pretty much everywhere I go, just always. But it started with just changing something simple from square to round, tapering the end, making it from bamboo instead of wood. So small, simple changes and then marketing. More uses, more adaptations, not just teeth. They became olive holders. I used them for hors d'oeuvres, you know, picking those things up, giving out samples, art projects. I remember making stuff with matchsticks and and, uh, toothpicks in uh, grade school. And even morphing into Q-tips. So toothpicks were actually the origin of what we see today as Q-tips. So a really simple idea, adapted, and someone with a vision to create something more. And your company might be just one innovative idea away from reaching new heights. You know, as a CEO, it's your responsibility to be agile, alert, and on the lookout for that game-changing leap. So what small change is right there that might open a new market for you? 
You know, what change could lead to interesting adaptations or use cases that you haven't thought about yet? You know, what feature is hiding in your solution already that could be used to solve a bigger problem for your clients? Embrace resourcefulness and look beyond the obvious solutions as you lead your company to success. Now, in this ever-changing economic landscape, every time you see a toothpick, think about the simplicity mixed with the complexity and the innovation coupled with marketing. And how can your solution gain that level of distribution and use like the toothpick? This week's episode is sponsored by FounderPath. If you want to scale up, you need capital to do it. You could raise and give up big chunks of equity for a few bucks, or you could do what the smartest founders do, and that begins with FounderPath. Get non-dilutive capital in 24 hours with no personal guarantee, no crazy fees, and super generous payback times. It's an absolute game changer. It's exactly what SaaS founders need, and the process is super easy. We've negotiated some special perks as a SaaS Fuel listener. Just visit our site at sasfuel.com. The special link is right there at the top of the page. Or hop up to the main menu under resources that says get SaaS funding. So get the funding you need and keep your equity with FounderPath. Our expert guest on Thursday was Vladimir Blagojevich, founder of FullFunnel.io. Vlad works with B2B tech brands to drive awareness and demand for their products and land six-figure enterprise deals with your ideal target accounts. It's a great conversation. And last week, our founder of our sales and marketing week was Troy Barter, founder of salesorg.io. Troy trains technology salespeople and helps great sales pros excel using a sales process that feels really good and solves problems in the real world for your ideal clients. So if you missed either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest this week is Richard Palaria, co-founder of Kermit. Richard co-founded Kermit after nearly 30 years at the helm of PA and Associates, a national leader in transportation spend management. Now he's taken that into the healthcare space. Kermit is a Baltimore-based healthcare cost reduction and spend management company that brings automation and insight to the high-spin category of implantable medical devices. Does that within hospitals and health systems. You know, it's another market segment that many of us never knew existed and is critical to our health systems and cost. So welcome someone who is using technology to help hospitals excel while keeping care excellent, Richard Palaria. Hey, Rich, welcome to SAS Fuel. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Well, tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you came up with the, the idea for Kermit. Okay, sure. So um, so I've been an entrepreneur for many years. Uh, Kermit is actually the uh, fourth entity that I've started. I've exited one. Um, in that particular business, I was actually negotiating uh, UPS, FedEx, DHL contracts for large parcel shippers around the nation. And the model I was using was I would only get paid if I saved them money. So I would go in and negotiate the rates on their behalf. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in that industry that um, are hard to forecast. For example, you think it's going to cost you $5 to ship a package to a customer. By the time it gets there, you've got a bill for $12. They, they apply residential surcharge and Saturday delivery and ex- extended surcharge for zip codes that are out of the area. And there's an arbitrary way that that's all uh, delivered and 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 uh, figured out. So, if I could go in and demystify that for my customers, they were happy to let me do it on their behalf. And then I would just present a slate of already negotiated 
rates and they could just choose the best carrier based on my advisory. And then I would just take a portion of what I saved them. So I was doing that for many, many years. I had built some uh, technology that helped me figure out how to build those customers. So in other words, how much did I save them in a very reliable way? So that, that that could stand up behind an invoice and 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 my customer could look at that and go, yeah, you you calculated this correctly. I have full transparency and visibility to it. And I was doing that for a while. And then I had an attorney at the time who had represented me for many years in my business dealings. And she had met two uh, former medical device reps. These were guys who were attending surgery for knee and hip cases inside of hospitals locally here in the Baltimore region where I am now. And uh, they wanted to set up an entity that would go into hospitals, help them negotiate better rates on implants, and take a portion of the savings. So like any astute um, attorney, she said, okay, I don't know how this will all work, but you need to go talk to Rich. And uh, they did. They came in and they told me what they wanted to do. And I was a little bit skeptical. But the one thing I knew was that about two weeks prior to meeting them, my mom had her first hip done. And all I'm thinking is, as they started to tell me this crazy story about how a salesperson for the implant company stands in the operating room with the surgeon. They're not providing any clinical or medical care. They're just there to sell devices in real time to the surgeon during the surgery. Wow. But I'm thinking like, one of you guys was standing in the OR with my mom and she didn't have any say in, in, in what she would pay or what implant. It was all based on what the surgeon wanted. And that surgeon played golf the day before with the rep and two weeks ago went to a steak dinner. So like, is there a conflict of interest here? And they started to develop this for me. And I thought, um, you know, let me let me sleep on this a little bit. So I went back home that night and I thought for a minute, like, this is crazy. I, I have an entity. I'm not interested in selling it. It's doing really well. But like the entrepreneur and all of us, I was kind of thinking, if I don't try this, I'll always wonder kind of what if. Sure. So I, I came back to them about a, a few days later, and I said, look, if you guys are really serious about this, here's what I'll do. I'll give you, I'll give you a place to, to work. Um, I'll give you some business assets. I've got some technology assets I've built. I think I could help uh, by guiding you in the growth of the company. I'll be the CEO. And we, we did a joint venture, and that was 11 years ago. Um, and very quickly, we landed some business uh, at some local hospitals, and we're, we were successful in doing that. So I sold the other business that I had for 25 years in the shipping deal, and I've uh, been doing Kermit full-time. And basically, what, what this is is a technology-enabled service where we help hospitals understand what they should be paying, not what they are paying, and we negotiate better rates for them. We keep a portion of the savings we're able to successfully secure. And then the, this, this whole process of a salesperson standing in the operating room that that all stays where it is, but there, but the the process of them billing on a piece of paper what they want to charge that all goes away. So we've digitized this process. We've launched a mobile app connected to a, a cloud-based enterprise app that gathers all everything that's sold in the operating room, prices it automatically, gets rid of the waste, fraud, and abuse, tells the hospital what's okay to pay and what isn't, and through that, a lot of data and analytics get surfaced that. We then go back in as consultants and help the hospital understand how to interpret that and how to take action on on those types of uh, other opportunities. That's really valuable, and because uh, a lot of times data is not there, and even when it is, interpreting it and, and making it make sense and then turning that into action is really really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, and it's it's no different in you know in the healthcare industry. In fact, it's I would I would claim it's probably worse. Um, there's been a large march in healthcare toward 
operating as a business. But for many, many years, and my dad was a cardiologist. I witnessed this in his own practice. The best caregivers are super caregivers. They're not great business people. Right. They enter the medical field because there's some altruistic call to it. They want to take care of people. They want to make people's lives better. And when you have to mix that with making a profit, running a business, charging a fair rate, a lot of times that's a conflict in a, in a caregiver's mind. So when you do this at scale inside of a hospital, especially a lot of these are nonprofits, many of them are faith-based, you have this kind of conflict, and it should never be that way. I mean, what, what, what the federal government is doing inside of the Medicare reform is asking hospitals, please take the initiative, like every other business in the United States, to run this thing in a profitable way. You've got to bring your costs down and manage them so that we give you the reimbursement. It's enough money for you to actually run your operations, pay everybody you need to, and continue to keep the doors open to serve the population. And we haven't been running healthcare that way. There's been a lot of a lot of waste in it for many, many years. And I think even somebody who's not in healthcare, maybe even tangentially for you and your audience, you see that. As people who pay insurance premiums, you, you definitely see that. Lot, of course. Way too many people with their hand in, in the pie. Yeah. Yes. And that's that's true. It's true in government. And I think probably second to that is healthcare. Yeah, for there's, sure. there's just so much waste in there that can be cut out, but a lot of it is is designed to be that way by the companies that are providing those services. That's correct, yes. So I really appreciate the transparency as part of that model and being able to, to show them and educate the, the hospitals and the staff of, you know, here's, here's what we saved and here's where more potential savings is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the advisory services wrapped around the technology, I think, really do give us a strategic advantage, and not only against our competitors who either have pure SaaS companies who just have apps, and then they're dealing with maybe a lot of churn uh, on the back end trying to keep that pipeline full, or pure, pure consulting companies who have no ability to actually collect the data, run the data, and enhance their services after they, they deliver the first round of savings, whatever that might look like. So I like the fact we have both. And I also see really in the past uh, five, 10 years, this large-scale migration to technology-enabled services. No longer do, for example, uh, venture capital and private equity need you to be pure SaaS. I mean, that was, that was the mantra 10 years ago. They wanted a big total addressable market. They wanted a B2C kind of play. And they just wanted it to, like Facebook, go blow it up. And uh, the real businesses that are making success and inroads and headway are doing this through services on the back end that keep the, the software very sticky and building a reliance upon that software so that people really can't, they don't cancel the contracts. They want to, they love renewing those contracts because they're getting such value beyond just the software. So I think that that's kind of where we're going to end up as well. So in building the software, is your background technical or are you in, in a different area? Yeah, I, I have kind of a weird mix, Jeff, of, uh, of skills. Um, I studied sales and marketing in college, and I graduated uh, with, with a, a Bachelor of Science in Business with a marketing emphasis. So I always kind of understood promotion really well and how to take a startup and how to kind of uh, put lipstick on it, so to speak, and get it out to market and, and get some initial traction. Um, in doing that, some of the places that I worked where I was in charge of the marketing function had a strong technology component. Uh, one of those was a technical staffing company that was, that did traditional staffing where you have uh, recruiters who are going out finding candidates and then salespeople who are finding companies who need 
really strong candidates. And then the two get matched somehow. And so this was way before its time when bandwidth was still very expensive to do. Uh, this technical staffing company, as the marketing director, I helped uh, generate with some other executives there an idea that maybe instead of sending people out on interviews, we could actually do this all online. So let's build studios in our recruiting offices and then let's build some matching algorithms. We're, this is way before AI and all of that, where we could actually build some um, intelligence inside the app that could, on, in a preliminary way, match a candidate to an open position and then host video snippets so that the hiring manager could say, all right, I've got 10 candidates. I like these three. Let's punch the button. Let's move into interview and I'll disregard the rest. Um, and so in that, I got to manage large technology teams and Without really having to be the CTO, I, I just had my fun with other people's money and, and building software <laughs> that was uh, that was backed. And we had some success with that. We end up, ended up selling that business to a very large uh, staffing company that still is in business today. Oh, that's really cool. I like that my background is marketing as well, a lot in technology, but I, I'm, not, I'm not a developer, not, uh, not a tech guy. I know enough to be dangerous. Sure. <laughs> and I think that's when you think about where things are, especially with SaaS, that's where the market is going. I think a long time ago, maybe before it was even really understood, Microsoft coined the, the phrase knowledge workers. And I remember going to a Microsoft conference when I was still in tech and doing development. And that's what they were really trying to put out there. That was that was SharePoint version one. That was in content management systems. We're just now, you know, we're, we're not where they are today. We're, they're just kind of coming to market. And I remember they wanted to democratize, which is kind of threatening to those of us who are in technology, how development works. They wanted to put it into the hands of regular people who understood workflow, but maybe didn't understand technology. And with this low code approach, they could stitch together a couple of things and have uh, a business app that they could launch internally. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of uh, developers who code in Notepad, so to speak, the real hardcore guys, took offense to that approach. But now look where we are in uh, you know 2022 on the verge of 2023. You have many low-code companies who are doing exceptionally well. And uh, it turns out that you know that was the approach I took at Kermit was we, we adopted a low-code approach to this. And, and it's really served us well here to get our, our stuff out on a shoestring budget way ahead of our competitors. We can do it much, much more quickly than they can. That's brilliant. I, I love the, the idea of low-code, no-code. And there's there's just so much benefit. I mean, even just being able to put a prototype together, even if if it's not the final version, it lets you get to market and, and test things very quickly. Is was that the reason that you did that? It was more about budget, Jeff. If I'm being okay. honest, we just we didn't have we didn't have any investment money at the time, and um, it's a good reason. You know, that, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was at least got the guy's foot in the door who did the work. But um, I had I had been exposed to this. In, when I had the shipping business, what, what I what I had was kind of a unique problem in that I was growing rapidly. I was loading in lots of new customers and I was doing the projects. I had no problem doing that. I had a staff that was helping me. Where I had a real bottleneck was when it came to the end of the month and I had to calculate what all these customers had saved and I had to produce that and attach it to an invoice as a report, I was finding I... Microsoft Excel and Microsoft Access, what I had access to at the desktop, I had outstripped the ability to, to use those desktop tools. It, it, would take me, it would take me an entire week at the end of the month. I'd start at the customers with the letter A, and by Friday, I worked to all the Zs, and I'd finally get the billing done. Wow. And that left me three weeks without any time off 
to work on the rest of the business. And I said, this just is not sustainable. So I showed this problem to a friend of mine who was a, a developer and he had become quite enamored with low code. And he says, and this was, I'm going back 15, maybe 12, 15 years now. So it's very, very, very early. early. Yeah. Yes. And, and he said to me, look, I'm dabbling in this thing called Mendix. Just give me like five grand in a couple months and I'll just come back to you. And I'm like, Okay, I uh, we I had developed a couple of apps uh, that I'd spent a lot more money on to make this problem go away, and none of them ever worked. So I said, that's kind of a drop in the bucket compared to what I've spent. So go ahead, do it. And um, about uh, two months later, he came back to me and he's like, "Are you ready to see your prototype?" I'd forgotten about the project. I totally <laughs> forgot about it. And he's like, uh, you know, he shows me this thing that he built, and he pushed a button, and in five minutes, it built everybody from A to Z. And it automated through an email uh, API that he had bolted on, emailing of all those invoices out. You know, like I said, 12 years ago, that was pretty revolutionary. Wow. And I said, sold, like I'm in. And and if I ever start another company, and I had no inkling at the time to do that, I said, I'm coming back to you. And I made good on that promise, right? I I, I came back when we did Kermit, and I, we saw a need for an app. Uh, and initially, it was just a very simple app, but I said, Low code is the way to do this. Uh, we didn't have a budget and we had very limited time. And we launched an MVP in about four months. And, and it, at, at month nine, we had our full version product out in the market with real patient data working in it. And it's only gone from there. I mean, we, we've gone to processing uh, over 200,000 surgical cases and saving over $200 million for hospitals. Wow. And that's just in the mid-Atlantic region where we are. We haven't really even ventured out of here yet on a national footprint. So there's a lot of promise for what we're doing. And I really believe the story that our customers don't hear and they don't need to know really is how we were able to do this very economically. And it fits very well with our mantra of being spend management and cost reduction experts we take it seriously for our own budgets, and we 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 want to do the same for our customers. So we definitely uh, live and breathe what we're out there selling. I think that's so good. With uh, reducing waste, I'm all for that. You, you know, somebody might make the case that if their hospital is is really concerned about cost, that maybe the level of care or you know the outcomes would not be as good. Uh, how do you address that? That's. That is such an important question and very astute for somebody who's maybe not directly involved in healthcare, but um, you're asking a real tough one because most physicians, so this category, just to back up a bit, is called physician preference items or PPI. That's an odd moniker. You've got to wonder why there's that middle P. Why is there a preference for a physician? Why do steak they develop dinners. a preference? Yes, yeah, steak dinners. Yeah, steak dinners, golf. Great golf. Um Sure, that's part of it. But I think uh, if you think about how physicians are trained, they'll go through um, residency. They'll do a fellowship usually. They're coming under the um, uh, mentorship of, a, of another surgeon who is either trying to groom them to take over the practice or add them to their, their care team, uh, their, their partner team. And so what you have is just a proclivity or a comfort with a certain set of instruments. And those instruments belong to a manufacturer. It could be it could be Depew, which is a Johnson & Johnson company that does total joint orthopedics. It could be Stryker, Smith & Nephew, Zimmer Biomet. These are all big companies you might have heard of. Sure. And if you're, if you're fellowship trained in that approach and then you're comfortable with those instruments as a brand new physician, you're going to get in that operating room and you're going to have you're going to you're going to do all the things that the hospital wants you to do. Have great outcome 
turn the room over quickly without any waste, uh, do it in a cost-effective way, and you develop a comfort level around that. So you're less, you're less apt to then look at something that might have a better cost point but might require you to do something different. I would say it this way. In the hands of a very capable surgeon, I would say the vast majority in the United States are very, very capable, at least in the categories that we deal with, which is orthopedic, uh, total joint orthopedic, knee, hip, shoulder, spine, cardiovascular surgery. Those are kind of the three big categories. These surgeons are very competent. They understand their craft well. And if things are set up in the operating room, they can get in and get out safely and efficiently. It's only when they don't have an understanding, there's no price tag on the box, they ask for the implant. And, you know, should they care? I suppose they should care. But a lot of them are not being brought into those conversations. They're letting supply chain take care of that. And supply chain is being told, you guys, you manage the cost side. Let us take care of the patient. Where do you get real lasting cost uh, reduction in spend management is when you bring all these parties together at the table to help collaborate in managing this category so that the industry, meaning the manufacturers of these devices and their salespeople, do not divide and conquer by putting finance on one side of the room, supply chain in another, and the surgeon in the operating room because they're controlling all three aspects of that conversation. When we bring visibility, because we have one set of data now, I'm bringing everybody to the table to collaborate on this. Now, all of a sudden, everybody can see exactly what's going on. And it's a much stronger trifecta, if you will, when they're all there. They can't do it, however, unless there's one really good, clean set of data. The the clinicians have their own set of data. The finance guys have their own set. Supply chain has their set. And then somebody's got to cleanse all that and bring it together in one app. By the time they do that effort... Everybody's moved off to whatever other big problem they're trying to solve. So with Kermit, they can have that data in real time coming directly out of the operating room and see it and take action on it. And that's that's what's really magical about what we're, what we're doing. That sounds really good. I mean, it, it, I love that, bringing them together because it's in, in silos, nobody wins. But bringing that, all that together, I think everybody does, including the patients. So they, they, they get the replacements that they need, the parts they need, uh, yeah. the, right, the right care and good outcomes. And that's yeah, ultimately sure. what everybody wants. Yeah, one, one thing I really didn't address in your question is that while there is a preference, our approach to reducing the cost really doesn't change the preference. What we're trying to do is we understand where the price ought to be in the marketplace for what's being used. If we can take exactly what's being used without changing that for the surgeon and just get the price where it ought to be, surgeon really shouldn't care because we're not asking them to change their practice. And that's what is very unique about our approach where our competitors try to get cost reduction is they say, well, you have 10 10 vendors today. If we consolidate that and push it to two vendors, you'll have more more revenue with them. You should get a better price. Well, somebody's going to lose. Typically, it's going to be the surgeon who doesn't want to change. And if they do, may not have that comfort level you were alluding to because you're, you're asking a very good question. Doesn't that equate to patient outcome? And while it shouldn't, it might. And you don't want, you don't want that to happen because there is no reduced cost that takes the place of a good patient outcome. We never want to be creating that kind of a situation. So our approach is we don't care what they want to use. We're just going to get it to the price where it ought to be at the market. And then the software is going to come in and keep a lid on that price so it doesn't creep back up. And that makes a lot of sense. It really gives them the ultimate flexibility and being able to use the right the right tools for the job, uh, but then provide those great outcomes without sacrificing discounts because you're not consolidating all your 
you're purchasing to one vendor. Yeah, exactly right. Oh, that's really smart. So what types of things have you learned uh, along your journey? And this is your, your fifth startup now. Mm-hmm. You know, you're at scale, doing some really impressive things. You know, what have you learned along the way? Uh, a lot of them have been more leadership uh, issues and questions that I had to just change my thinking on rather than technology issues. I, I think when you think about technology, there, there's oh, at the right at the right price, if you've got the budget to do it, you're always going to find a solution. There's always something cool right around the corner. And uh, there's a discipline there too, right, Jeff? It's you, you can't be chasing those shiny pennies every time you see a new version or something new come to market. Uh, the discipline of not upgrading every time an upgrade is offered to you, but uh, trying to pick the right time to do that after you know, you've got a full version or the bugs have been worked out or whatever that looks like. And I think that's a pretty good principle that most CTO level people at enterprise level have adopted. Um, And I follow some of that. But, you know, now at the startup and moving on to trying to get scale for this, we have professionals now in every facet of the business. So while I'm versed in in almost every single piece of this business, me and and my partners have done every job in this business with the exception of maybe writing the code. We've done every other other piece. Um, we've hired now uh, full-time people to come in and run all that stuff, and now we can really concentrate on the strategic part of it. So it's been more about, uh, less about the tech, although I'm, I just have a, a passion for that. I love to stay abreast of that. But it's been more about uh, how to manage a staff of 30. Uh, how do you think about health insurance and those kinds of things? And what do, what do people really need to keep them focused uh, and healthy and motivated about doing the best job that they can, making it, taking out the obstacles out of their way and, and making them productive because they love to work here, not because they need a paycheck. And I'm very happy to say that, uh, you know, you think about the model we have, hospitals have to do surgery and they have to save money in order for us to make any revenue. So we can't send out an invoice unless they do surgery. Well, what happened in the last two years? Those operating rooms all shut down. Yep. So we had I had to sit down with my my executive team and my partners and we had to take a hard look at our business and we had to say, you know, nobody ever envisioned a pandemic. And then when it started, we were all told the same thing, you know, two weeks to blunt the curve or whatever we were being told. Right. This won't yeah. possibly go on for two months, let alone two years. And you know, here we are. So we had to make some tough decisions. And one of the things I'm most proud about, Jeff, is that we saw the most recent hire or two most recent hires at the time we told everybody right around March 15th and you know what year that was yep. everybody go home and work from home they were they were getting cardboard boxes out and packing their stuff up and not because they were going to work from home because they thought they were getting fired and i had to say what are you guys doing and they said well obviously we were last to come in we'll be first to leave and i said we're not doing that here I'm going to pledge to you right now that if there's any possible potential way for us to avoid laying anybody off, we're going to keep 100% of our staff. And we were able to do that. We got a little bit of PPP money and we burned that pretty quickly. But um, we were able to actually take a lot of the the cash we had made in previous years and, and just spend that down to stay alive. And we kept everybody on staff. And it was really one of those things that really produced a very strong culture here of family you know, it's everybody's got their primary family, their real family, and then you've got your work family, and not everybody right. loves their work family. I think I think most people, if not all of them here, love Kermit. They they're very um, they see what we've done because we care for them, not because we're trying to keep them happy. 
uh, it's because we really care for them. And whether it's me or my two co-founders, we view everybody here and every paycheck we write and everything that we do as we're, we have more lives uh, and people that need, we need to feed beyond our initial you know, uh, wives and kids. So that's really, really important to me. And, and coming from a solopreneur kind of approach for many, many years, uh, doing this at scale and heading up a company, that was a different thing I had to learn. And I really credit organizations like uh, EOS, Entrepreneurs Organization System and Operating System, and EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization at large, because those two, those two systems and organizations really helped me get around people who could help me kind of take this thinking forward. That's really smart. So what role have mentors played in your success? Uh, for, for, you know, for the most part, I think that um, mentors that don't give advice, but mentors that share experience, and that's really the foundation of entrepreneurs organization is, is getting together in a confidential forum and doing experience sharing. It sounds like just a nuance between, let me give you a piece of advice versus let me tell you something that I experienced, and I don't care, you can take it or leave it, maybe there's just a nugget in there for you, but when you get around a, a table with, with 10 other people who all deal with what you're dealing with. Maybe they have a different business, different industry, but they're all in that very lonely place of leading an organization and lots of things that they're experiencing every day. They can't share with their staff. They might not be able to share with their board. They definitely can't share with their families. They, nobody can relate to that. So you right. have the sounding board who is saying, like, let me tell you, when I had to build a comp plan, this is what I did, and this is what worked for me and what didn't. And nine other people get to go after that first one. And you assimilate all that. It's very, very powerful to walk away from that meeting and say, I think I knew what to do when I came in here, but hearing all you guys propelled me forward to know what I, what I really needed to do, and I'm going to go take action. And then you come back next month, and you have to give an update. So there's an accountability function there, too. That is super, super powerful. And I know... EO is not the only organization that does that. There are others that have done that, but that's what I really call mentorship. It's sharing the experience, not providing the advice. People receive advice differently. Yes. Experience sharing is, is really where it's at. 100%. And you can leapfrog you know, so, many, so many problems, pitfalls, issues by having that perspective and just mm -hmm. hearing what other people have, have gone through and how they've solved those challenges. Definitely. So a really smart way to do that. I like that. Just the, the contrast between experience and advice. It's a, you know, advice is, is okay, but experience is invaluable. Yeah. And, and you know, so I have a very unique forum here. In, in the Baltimore chapter, we have about 45 members where I'm located. And each of them have their own forums of anywhere between six and nine people. So mine's really unique. Like I, I, have, I have a SaaS startup in there that's in the vacation rental business. And I have no doubt this guy's going to sell his business for uh, lots of zeros after the figure. And it's, it's not going to be <laughs> too good. long from now. It's a very hot industry. Uh, I have another that's in uh, augmented and uh, reality and virtual reality. So two, two tech founders who, when they tell me about their tech experience, I'm listening. I'm definitely listening. My company might be ahead of them revenue-wise, but their experience is no less relevant. Um, then I have two construction companies, and you'd be surprised. The experience that comes out of those two people is just as relevant as the tech guys. So I think when you get around a really well-rounded well group of people who can do this experience sharing in a, in a framework that is very purposeful, it's got confidentiality and non-disclosure around it, kind of what, what's said in the forum stays in the forum kind of mentality, 
it really lets everybody get very productive very quickly. It strips away 95% of the fluff and just gets to the 5% of what's super, super important. And if you start there, you don't have to take a journey to get to the 5%. You start with the 5% because there's a framework that does that for you. It's super powerful. And this is a global organization. I mean, EO is is, a, is across the world. So right. I'm part of a, a large, large organization that if I go into, whether it's Charleston or Barcelona, I can relate immediately to those members because they're they're experiencing exactly the same thing that I am. And there's a lot of that that translates very quickly. Oh, that's really good. I think helping each other is is so important and sharing those experiences. And I really appreciate th- that observation that revenue is not the only measure. So just because mm-hmm. somebody is is bigger in revenue doesn't mean that you can't learn from somebody who may be ahead in technology or ahead in a different industry or being bringing best practices from one industry into another. Yeah. Or, or having, um, 1 million in revenue when everybody else around the table is already at 10, but it happens to be their seventh or eighth startup. Like a lot of wisdom <laughs> that comes different. from that person. Yeah. And, and a big network too. I mean, a lot of people who understand that, who have built successful businesses and done well and then exited and started other ones, usually are doing it on the shoulders of other people in their network because they're, they they understand how to pay it forward and that whole mentality. And when you do that long enough, you build a very good network of people who know, like when Jeff calls me and needs something, I'm going to drop everything for him because he's always been a solid for me and I'm, I'm going to be there for him. And so, yeah, it's you, you just can't put a price on that and you definitely can't replicate it. Without a doubt. That's really good. If you could go back and tell yourself something, you know, maybe at the the back of the the beginning of your first startup, you know, what would that thing be that you would tell yourself? Well, I know the first startup was pretty small. I was I was uh, I was a real estate. I wasn't even a real estate appraiser. I was doing sales out of college for a real estate appraisal company, and I was getting a commission for all the appraisals I was selling. We had a group of appraisers, and we had two business valuation folks who were running the business. And um, the business was fantastic. The management of it was kind of what got us in trouble and they had to declare bankruptcy. And all of a sudden I had a bunch of clients sitting there who still wanted to give appraisals to us and a bunch of appraisers who had out of business. And um, I went to my dad, whose opinion I really valued, uh, probably like you. And I said, uh, I've got this opportunity, dad, like should I do it or should I just bail on the whole thing and go find a job? And, uh, you know, my dad's old school. He was a doctor. And while he was, he was an entrepreneur himself, I think he saw a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on around him that said, you know, you need to go get a salary. That's the best thing for you to do. That's the sure thing. And something in the back of my mind, I'm like, I, I, I can't. I'll always be wondering, what if I didn't do this at this point? And so... Um, you know, I, I brought back the appraisers. I had a little bit of cash I saved. I went and got myself an office. I had the built-in marketplace already. And I just brokered back and forth until I realized, hmm, I'm paying people a lot of the revenue to go do this work. When it doesn't look all that hard, I'll go get certified and become an appraiser and did that for a while. I would say because of that solo entrepreneur journey where you're in control of a lot of things, you're really controlling your own destiny. If you want to go surfing that morning or you want to go skiing or, or you want to take the day off, okay, you, you didn't do any appraisals. You didn't make any money, but you also had the flexibility to do that. And maybe that's worth something. Um, when you try to do that at scale, it's a very different journey. You can't, you can't just muscle through and make things happen for yourself. You need the help and you rely upon 
everybody. And so this journey has been more about a body that's got eyes and a brain and a mouth and feet and hands. And the eyes can't go anywhere unless the feet walk. So you need everybody. And uh, that took me, I'm very independent. I like to go at my own speed. And so that took me a little while to understand. Uh, and that that would be like, I guess if you're asking me the question, past self would have told future self, hey, watch for this. Like, there are no Lone Rangers at enterprise level. It doesn't matter. There's there's never really one person who came up with the idea and made made it, uh, you know, big. Not even Jeff Bezos can claim that, right? right? So, right. so that that's a really important lesson. And, um, you know, I know there's an old proverb or adage that says, if, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go with others. And I had to really kind of stop and embrace that. Um, and it was very meaningful, you know, for me and wh- where I am today. That's really insightful. And I think that that freedom is really elusive, especially as the company continues to grow, that you can really become all-consuming and, uh, and and you lose out on that independence and freedom that a lot of us became entrepreneurs for in the first place. Right. Kind of ironic. Yeah, for sure. Well, you've talked about uh, teams uh, a couple of times and and building that. And I know you've got that you know, remote team now and uh, mm-hmm. and managing them. How do you know if you have the right team? Is is there a good way that you found to to identify them and make sure they're going to be a good fit for you? So, um, you know, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of a battery of different tests. I think there's a lot of stuff out there, whether it's Myers-Briggs or the Harrison assessment that are very, very intensive and involved. Uh, and people, you know, staff members might look at that and go, oh, I got to take this thing. I don't like being psychoanalyzed. And what are you going to use this information for? But there's one that recently, you know, we, we're pretty much fully staffed here. I, I don't think unless we have some kind of an acquisition that takes place with a larger parent that we would need to kind of retool what we're doing. So there's not a lot of new hiring that's going to take place. And, and I wish I had this tool in my kit years ago because I'm very impressed with it. It's called Culture Index. And you're really just answering two questions. And you're, and the answers to those questions come from a word cloud of things that appeal to you. And so you're picking out these different things. And I know, Jeff, I gave you the link to go take yes. it. And I'm going to send you your results because they, they came in. And so when we're done with this podcast, I'll go find them. And I think you'll be very um, impressed with how accurate this is. Uh, the friend of mine um, who has the vacation rental uh, software business, who's in EO with me in my forum that I mentioned, he calls this Moneyball for hiring. And it really is. He doesn't look at resumes anymore if he can avoid it. He has a candidate that seems interested and he's interested. He gives them culture index. They take it. He comes back and he knows exactly what seat to plug them into. And as a CEO of the company, you would think he would be the last person that does the interview just before they hire. He's the first person that does the interview. He does the weeding out process and then he sends them to the departments and says, this person is a great fit on culture index. They're an architect or whatever the type is. They're going to be your COO. And you're going to interview them for that. So you make the final decision. I give my approval. And uh, this guy has grown his business with the right people in the right seats in a phenomenal way. So I'm a big fan. Like I said, I, w- I wish it was something I knew about years ago. But if I, I can pass that on to, to anybody in the audience who might be watching or listening, just Google Culture Index and see what you think about it. Um, a lot of opinions about it out there. It's been around a long time. It's not brand new. But again, Two questions. How long did it take you, Jeff? Would you say less than less 10 minutes? than five minutes? Less than five minutes. Yes, um, maybe two minutes. I mean, it, just, it wasn't any time at all. 
Yeah, and it just is, you know, I don't know where it came from. There's some rumors that it came from the military at one point. I don't know the true origins of it, but it's it's very impressive. And so, you know, when you think about two minutes of your time, and if it's that accurate, wow, that could be a deal, a deal changer. So, yeah, I'm, I, I think there are lots of applications for that, whether it's uh, venture companies who are putting a new management team and need to staff a startup quickly. It's, it, it can be a changer, a real unfair advantage. So, that's that's a really cool thing about getting the team built and the right people in the right seats. Um, Entrepreneur's uh, operating system, EOS, has been another uh, really good tool for helping with that. And there are other alternatives to EOS that are out there now. But uh, that one's tried and true and adopted widely across, across the globe, really. Um, that's a very sound process for trying to figure out uh, what are the big things that need to get done and keeping your entire team focused on that rather than waking up every day? And it's hard with a remote team because you don't get sure. to see exactly what they're doing. And so if you're going to leave it up to everybody's own devices about what's important, sure, they'll get a lot of work done. But in the end, it won't it won't produce, you know, moving you from A to B in the company as an enterprise because they're all working on different things that are important to them. So th- those are two big ones that... Uh, that really help with team building. And we're not completely remote, but COVID definitely changed that. We sent a lot of people home, some worked locally, and uh, they just didn't come back to the office because they prefer to be at home. So we've adapted to that. Uh, it's given us some strategic advantage to hire in any state that we want. There's also a lot of HR complexities with that. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, there are. My, my tax returns are, are really, really big. I've got to file returns in every state now. So there's some some downside to that too, but um, we have a very dedicated, talented group of people because I think we were we remained flexible to that. We figured out a way to make it work to to our advantage and give them what they wanted, without it impacting really the the, the work that they're delivering. And you know, we're just in a business where we can take advantage of that. It's not for everybody. I know that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we'll definitely link the culture index uh, in the show notes, and so people can take a look at that. Yeah, great. Well, where can the audience find out more about you and about Kermit online? Uh, so our, our website is kermitppi.com, K-E-R-M-I-T-P-P-I. I mentioned both of those. Kermit is, a, is an interesting story about how he named the company. And it's you don't have to think a little further than what you're already thinking. If that's, <laughs> if that's where you're thinking is, you've got it. Um, and the PPI, I mentioned physician preference items. So at KermitPPI.com, we have a very active blog where we're putting a lot of thought leadership up there. A lot of the uh, appearances for both me as a guest on podcast are there, but we've also launched our own podcast called Healing the Hospital. And we, we, we talk to guests who are really making a difference who kind of follow the same methodologies that we do where we don't want to stand any longer for waste, fraud, and abuse. When we see a problem, no matter how daunting it is, if we turn that rock over, we're going to do something about it. We're not going to put the rock back in place and forget that we saw it and not tell anybody. So those people are uh, thought leaders. They're change agents. They're really exciting people. Uh, we're only three episodes in, so the third one's going to launch next week. But we're doing we're doing one a month now, and as as I think we get more comfort, we'll we'll probably go to a more frequent uh, way of doing that. The last place I would point people to is go to LinkedIn and search Kermit PPI. And I guess anything that's that's not a frog that pops up is definitely us. So we do, we do a lot of uh, posting and thought leadership and and putting little snippets of videos and things up there, and really kind of cheat codes, if you will 
to how hospitals can do this on our own, on their own without hiring us if they want to. We want everybody to take advantage of everything that we've learned to bring their costs down and to improve spend management in a very, very tight budgeting uh, season that they find themselves in. One out of every two hospitals, Jeff, in the United States this year in 2022 will post an operating loss. Wow. That's staggering to think about. Uh, by the end of the year, I think the number will be over 1,000, but today it's in the high 900s of CEOs of hospitals who have left their job this year. Either they've walked off the post or they've been let go by their boards. What we're dealing with wow. right now is a different pandemic that we're not talking about. It's not, it's not a, a healthcare pandemic in that it's clinical. It's one of uh, a staffing issue and a budget issue. The hospitals are completely upside down. The CARES Act money that, that, that the government had put into the system has dried up. They're not, they're not giving any more money. And people have left their jobs. Nurses that have left are being hired back at the same places where they used to work as contractors for two and three times their original salaries. So this is not sustainable where we are. So a lot of what we're posting is talking about what are these big problems in healthcare and how can we come together as a community and collaborate to solve them? We're not doing a lot of selling of our own stuff. We hope that people realize how much we care about fixing healthcare and that they join that cause and they come to us and say, you're the kind of people we wanna work with how can you help us? We'll, we'll, we'll buy what you're selling and then we can talk to them about, about how we can help. That's a great business model. And, and I love that, that you really focused on the industry as a whole. And we'll be sure and link to Healing the Hospital podcast as well. Thank you. That would be fantastic. Yeah. And I think we, we, we have a, a link that we'll give you with it. If people think of somebody that they would like to nominate as a hospital healer, we officially dub them on the show and we give them a, a gift at the end that they use in social media to promote that uh, aspect, that there's a nomination form online that's super easy. They can just plug in the contact information of the person they'd like to nominate. We'll follow up and see if we can get them on the show. So uh, you know what it's like when you're running a podcast. Uh, you're only as good as the guests that come on. And if you can have a depth on that bench, it really is uh, really gives you some peace of mind as a host to know uh, we, we have our shows lined up. So that's what we're trying to do right now. That's really smart. And there are definitely... Great, great people out there that are, are really making a big difference in healthcare. Absolutely, and yeah. And we, we'd like to know where they are and and bring them on the show. Yeah, celebrate them for sure. Yeah. It's been a great conversation, Rich. I really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again, Rich, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Rich and Kermit at kermitppi.com. And of course, be sure to check out his podcast, Healing the Hospital, as well. You can connect with Richard on LinkedIn, too. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Please subscribe or follow us there as well. Drop us a note. Let us know how you're enjoying the show, what you love about it. And the team loves to hear your feedback and comments. And I do as well. So everyone who subscribes this week gets a golden toothpick to remind you to stay innovative and find new ways to solve old problems. Join us next time on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series on Thursday for Michael Bertoni, founder and CEO of Philly Tech and now SaaS Talent. Michael brings great insights on how to find, hire, incentivize, and keep top talent. It's a great episode. One of my favorite people to talk to. Uh, Michael Bertoni, and then our founder next week 
is Michael Maximoff, another Michael. Michael Maximoff from Folderly. Folderly is a SaaS that keeps your emails out of spam so your message gets right to your ideal clients and prospects. Amazing solution and something that we all need in our businesses for sure. So as always, enjoy the journey and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.